0: Welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say and reporting it without fear or favour. My name's Adrian Goldberg. This week, the privatised pandemic. How profit making firms have seen coronavirus as an opportunity to cash in on the NHS. There have been companies with no healthcare experience, but sometimes close friendships with ministers, who have snagged multi million pound PPE contracts. Test and Trace was outsourced too, and now the government is putting its trust in a controversial US tech firm to handle patients' data. What could possibly go wrong? We'll hear from critics who say this is turbocharging, a disturbing long-term trend.
1: We may not see the effects right now of our health service being privatised, but it most definitely is, day by day, bit by bit
0: plus Sweden's COVID refugees. We hear from two long-term residents who have quit the Scandinavian country altogether because of its approach to the pandemic.
2: Being in that environment in the spring and listening to the way people would say, well, let the people at risk take care of it. Maybe they, they should be the ones to have to stay in. Oh, we'll do it this way, and we'll just lose a few of our sick and our elderly. That kind of dehumanising speech is nothing I want to be raising my family in.
0: Before all that, just a reminder to subscribe to our monthly paper, The Byline Times. A subscription costs just £36 a year, and as well as getting the paper, you'll be helping to fund our website and this podcast. We don't take money from media tycoons or corporate sponsors, which is why we can afford to tell it like it is. You can do your bit to fund incisive, fearless journalism by subscribing. Get more details at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. And if you've already taken out a subscription, thank you. Now, the NHS is big business for big business. Health commissioners spend more than £9 billion a year on services delivered by outside contractors, such as Virgin Care. And if spending on primary care services, including GPs, pharmacists, opticians and dentists is included, it's thought that as much as 25% of NHS spending goes on the private sector. It's a trend which has been accelerating over recent years, with critics claiming that the NHS is being privatised by stealth. The government says that's not true, but what can't be disputed is that coronavirus has opened the door to yet more outsourcing. We'll hear shortly about a contract awarded to a U.S. tech firm initially to cover the Covid crisis, but which has now morphed into a secretive and longer-term £23 million deal. First though, Byline Times investigative reporter Sam Bright, who has done so much to uncover the cronyism around contracts for personal protective equipment, or PPE, he's been giving me his overview of the privatised pandemic.
3: This has been outsourcing on speed during the uh, pandemic, Adrian. To put it in a bit of context, the Department of Health and Social Care usually spends between one and two billion pounds a year on private sector procurement. During the pandemic over the past year, it has budgeted for a 22 billion pounds spend on its test and trace system alone and has spent in the range of 16 billion on personal protective equipment. So this has been a huge campaign of public sector work going to big private firms. And there have been some pretty galling examples of this. For example, on Test and Trace, big management consultancies have been brought in. Ironically, one of the consultancies, McKinsey, Dido Harding, who runs the Test and Trace system, used to work for course, we're not implying that she called up her old mates at McKinsey, but it is a bit of a coincidence. And now firms such as McKinsey, Deloitte, similar companies, they've been charging out a £1,000 a day per consultant working on the Test and Trace programme. And we know, we've reported and revealed on Byline Times that roughly 2,000 consultants are working on the system, which amounts to £2 million a day That the government is forking out. And at the last Health and Science Committee, Dido Harding was asked to explain exactly what these consultants do. I think it's fair to say that MPs weren't quite satisfied by the answer that she gave, considering how much, you know, this is our money, this is taxpayers' money, how much of that cash is going out towards these consultants.
0: And the argument for the private sector is that it is more efficient than the public sector, but certainly in terms of test and trace, that hasn't been evident.
3: No, I mean, test and trace has had a pretty dire record. It's got its act together in recent months, but when it was really needed during the first and second waves of the pandemic, it was pretty non-existent. I mean, if we cast our mind back a year, I know it's tricky now, but we didn't have a testing operation set up until the early summer And even then, it really struggled to cope with demand. So, for example, between the end of May and early November, only 41% of people received their test results within 24 hours. And that was despite the fact that Boris Johnson had pledged in June that all tests would be turned around within 24 hours by the end of that month. So that just gives a hint of the scale of the problem. And we've got to consider, of course, that the, the countries that have really dealt with coronavirus well. The Asian countries in particular have deployed test and trace successfully. And it's something that the government has always used as a crutch. I mean, we look at the lateral flow testing, the moonshot plan that they're rolling out currently. And yet ours has been, has completely failed. It's been entirely insufficient to the challenge that we've been faced with.
0: And the one aspect of test and trace that was relatively successful, ironically, was the part that was handled
3: by... Public health agencies. Well, exactly. The um, public health agencies. I mean, it, it just seems to make sense, doesn't it, Adrian? I mean, people on the ground at a local level understand people. They understand the people they're communicating with. They understand the dynamics of local communities. And so are far more capable of reaching those people and those people listening to them, heeding their advice, and isolating. I mean, a fundamental problem with this as well is that isolation payments, the remuneration for people to isolate, has been completely insufficient from the government. The government is essentially saying you should get a test, and if you test positive, you should stay at home. But we're not actually going to compensate you if you have to be in that situation. And lots of people, as the government has acknowledged, Dido Harding said this in the committee, lots of people are simply not getting tested Because they know if they test positive, they'll have to self-isolate and they might not be able to put bread on the table the following week for their families. There's a huge disconnect of logic from the government with the testing programme.
0: We've rehearsed on this podcast before the numerous weaknesses, to say the least, in the allocation of contracts for PPE equipment. And Dawn Butler, the Labour MP, has raised questions in Parliament based on your research in the Byline Times. Is there a defence for the government here, though, in the sense that the pandemic wasn't expected, there wasn't enough PPE provision in the system, and they had to get it from somewhere? And if that meant going to the private
3: sector to obtain PPE, then that's what had to be done. Yeah, I mean, that's what the government said, and it comes up daily, pretty much, with that argument. You know, it was a rush. We had to procure equipment quickly. People were dying, which is all true. But... The National Audit Office released a report last November that stipulated that the government actually thought for a large period of time, until late March, that its existing stockpiles of PPE would be sufficient to cope with the demand that we would see during the pandemic. (laughs) That was proven to be categorically and quite devastatingly false. And so the government then rushed to procure as much equipment as it could from the private sector. And of course, companies knew that the government, I mean, you're a big fan of football, Adrian. When, when when, a club knows that its player is in demand, or it knows that another club really needs a centre-back, for example, the price of that player is going to go through the roof. And that's exactly what happened in the case of PPE. The price of PPE went up massively. We overpaid by £10 billion for the PPE that we procured from the private sector. And no one's saying that that didn't need to happen. All I'm saying is the government should have realised a lot sooner that that was needed, and perhaps we wouldn't have spent so much money.
0: And indeed, the High Court has said that Matt Hancock, the health secretary, acted unlawfully by handing out coronavirus contracts without publishing the details in a timely way. It's these kind of details, where they have been published, that you've been able to discover and bring to public light through the Byline Times. Matt Hancock's argument against that is well, look, I'd sooner have my officials sourcing. PPE, vital PPE at a time of national crisis, rather than filling out forms to show where the PPE contracts have gone.
3: Yes, and I think this whole case of Matt Hancock acting unlawfully, it's obviously no minister should be found to have acted unlawfully. But I think ultimately what we should be focusing on is the details of these contracts. The fact that contracts went to firms that had no experience in the field. There were essentially shell companies a lot of these firms. I think it's ironic, though, as well, on the delay in the publishing of the contracts. That, I don't know, it's a bit suspicious that a contract that was awarded last April, that was awarded to one of Matt Hancock's friends, has only just been released by the government. So it took the best part of a year for that contract to be released. And I don't think... Anybody can be blamed for wanting to get to the bottom of that sort of practice from the government.
0: Indeed not. Sam Bright, and you can read more of his investigations at Byline Times. Mystery also surrounds a deal signed by the Department of Health with a US tech firm, initially hired last March to manage the government's Covid data store. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism has established that talks with the company had in fact been taking place months before Covid was heard of, with meetings in Davos, London and San Francisco. The original contract was described as a short-term emergency measure, but it's now emerged that a new two-year agreement worth £23.5 million was signed in December. It wasn't publicised at the time and has a much broader remit. Mary Fitzgerald, editor-in-chief of the global news website Open Democracy, is taking the government to court over this secretive arrangement. We'll also hear from Pascal Robinson, campaigner with We Own It, who are concerned about the growth of outsourcing generally in the NHS. But first Mary, who's been giving me the background on her legal action.
4: So this week, we issued a lawsuit against the UK government for the massive data deal they struck, £23 million for two years with Palantir, which is a controversial spy tech firm best known probably for its counterinsurgency operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's built software which has been accused of fueling racist feedback loops in US policing. It's been criticised by its own staff for its controversial role in the deportation of undocumented migrants in the US under Donald Trump. It was founded by a Trump-backing Silicon Valley billionaire. So it has a rather checkered record to say the least. And we think that its involvement in the NHS and in particularly in handling our sensitive personal health information is something that should be open for public scrutiny and public debate, particularly at a time when the government is pushing against vaccine hesitancy and the concerns that might be raised, particularly amongst minority ethnic groups, about the role of a company like Palantir in
0: processing our sensitive personal health information and playing a long-term role in the NHS. What kind of information are they processing and what is the NHS getting out of it?
4: Well, that's an excellent question. If we knew that, we would know a lot. (laughs) At the beginning of the pandemic, the NHS announced that Palantir, along with a lot of other major private tech firms, Google, company called Faculty, a number of others, were going to be helping with what they called the COVID nineteen data store, which was supposed to help establish a single source of truth about the pandemic. It was there to help help us learn about the disease quickly and track information about this very new disease, which was, was, a, was a genuine public health emergency, they assured us that it was a short term emergency measure. This wasn't part of a long term plan. And they subsequently assured us that were the contracts to be extended or, or the purpose of the data store to change, that this would go out to public consultation and public tender. This didn't happen. We were concerned that this wouldn't happen. So we, through our lawyers, wrote to them asking for those assurances and putting them on notice that we intended to issue proceedings if this public consultation didn't happen as we suspected it wouldn't. They used our legal action as an excuse to avoid questions from journalists about the role of Palantir and their future plans for the role of Palantir in the NHS. And then they snuck through this deal quietly and published it post-fact. They sealed the deal, the £23 million two-year deal with Palantir, on the 11th of December and didn't announce it until after the fact, knowing that it would be controversial for all the reasons that I have have just listed. What's striking about the new deal is that they have redacted all the data sources that are being fed into this data store. So the honest answer to your question about what data is being tracked and how is we don't know and we deserve to know.
0: And there's an interesting backstory to this involving, amongst other things, watermelon cocktails. (laughs) Tell me about that. No,
4: no good lobbying story (laughs) misses details like this. So another reason why we suspected, have long suspected, that Palantir is angling for a longer term role in the NHS is it's, it's been involved in intensive lobbying of senior NHS officials and senior UK government officials. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that. That's not illegal. But it points to a longer-term relationship. And one of the things that the Bureau of Investigative Journalism has uncovered with their freedom of information requests is that these top NHS and government officials being lobbied by Palantir for many years, including meetings in Davos, in London, in San Francisco, courted over dinner and over watermelon cocktails, which it turns out senior NHS officials were particularly fond of, (laughs) as the correspondence reveals. But the more serious point is that The idea that this was a quick fix and they turned to Palantir because there was no one else available to do it, rather than a long-term plan to bed companies like this into the NHS, is fiction. And our reporting and the Bureau's reporting reveals that.
0: If there's a job to be done of data processing or data mining, which can help improve the health of the population... What does it matter if it's a private company doing that rather than the NHS doing it itself?
4: It's a question of accountability. The NHS belongs to us, we the public. The data that is being processed is our personal health data. And if you're going to do that, we should have a say in how it's processed, how it's governed, who that's done by. And that's the real issue at stake here. We need accountability. We need scrutiny. And we need debate. And the tragedy is, of course, there are so many important ways that data can be used to improve public health outcomes, to save lives, to tackle diseases. And surveys show NHS patients aren't against this if it's done in an equitable way and if they have a say in how
0: it's done. So for you, the issue is one of transparency and accountability. Pascal, what do you make of this deal?
1: I think it's absolutely shocking that our data is being accessed by a big private company. I think there is a problem with private companies using our data. And that's down to the fact that private companies, at the end of the day, their raison d'etre is to make profits. They are accountable to their shareholders and not to communities. And the NHS data is an extremely monitored, tizable that's not a word, but you can make money out of this data. We have some of the best health data all over the world because we have a health service that has been run by the state, by public bodies for over 70 years now. And therefore, companies all over the world are eyeing this up and, and seeing what they could do if they could find out who's most likely to get X, Y, Z, what the costs are for other X, Y, Z. So I think this is a real issue and we need exactly as mary said a discussion about what our data is used for and i don't think people would be happy to know that that their health data is being used for anyone to make money out of it should be used to make people healthier and make decisions of course there is another question here about whether our data is being used to facilitate further cost savings you know Of course, we've got the white paper coming out, which is all about removing bureaucracy and doing population health management. But this is all within a framework of reducing costs and offering a certain amount of money to local areas, not based on need, but based on an attempt to try and fit people within a certain budget. Those are things that we should all be thinking about. And of course, Mary is also completely right. This is part of a long term plan. We've seen, as Sam talked about, outsourcing on steroids but this was happening well before the pandemic and we know that when health is in in public hands it's handled far better for our communities as we saw in tests and trace the vaccine rollout and I could go on.
0: The government's commitment is to an NHS free at the point of service and although there has been a process over many years of outsourcing certain parts of the NHS to private companies, that principle has remained intact. For many patients, that's all that they will care about.
1: I disagree. I think that 82% of the public support an NHS mainly run in public hands. And polling last year showed that 90% of people support the, the original principles of the NHS. That's universal comprehensive healthcare, free at the point of use. I think you're really right to highlight that we're supposedly hanging on to this myth of free at the point of use. But increasingly, even that is being torn apart. We can't forget that migrants are now being charged for their health care. This is an attack on all of us. And it is an attempt to normalise certain people, supposedly less deserving people, paying for health care. Of course, we know the NHS is an incredibly complex beast. And... We may not see the effects right now of our health service being privatised, but it most definitely is day by day, bit by bit. We need to resist this, and and we know that the support is out there, so it's a case of us getting organised. These moves are perfect evidence that the idea that they don't want to privatise our NHS is completely false.
4: I think it's very important to ask what is free at the point of use, and particularly with the involvement of firms like Palantir, How are they processing our our data? How are they categorizing us? What services are going to be provided to whom based on the way that our data is analyzed and processed and how we're categorized? Of course, there have been plenty of assurances that none of this stuff implies different levels of service for different groups of people. But firms like Palantir make their money on
3: (laughs) analysing
4: this kind of data and categorising people and groups in different ways. So what would be the purpose of doing it if it wasn't to treat them differently? So I think the question of what is being provided free at the point of use is really, really critical. I think there's another really important point here about scrutiny and challenge, which is that a lot of the services that have been delivered, particularly during COVID at exorbitant prices, by very well politically connected firms have failed. Serco's Test and Trace was criticized even by the government's own advisors, Sage, for having a negligible effect on the spread of the virus. Deloitte's PPE procurement system was a complete disaster. So I feel as though that scrutiny and challenge is important, whoever's delivering the services, and it seems that there's less scrutiny and challenge when it's these large private firms with a long history of, of, of failings.
1: The further they get their teeth into our health service, the more that we allow them opportunities to eventually reduce our state's capacity, reduce the NHS's capacity to provide really good services and for them to fill those gaps. And then once we depend on them, they can start to say, well, actually, you're going to need to pay for this. It's not our duty to provide a health service. We're a company at the end of the day and we need to make money. So I think that these are things that we need to be thinking about all the time and as i mentioned people do support an nhs run in public hands for the public people don't want to see profit made off of illness and 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 misery
0: pascal robinson from we own it with mary fitzgerald from open democracy and you can find details of the crowdfunder for open democracy's legal action on the acas page which hosts this podcast It's also well worth tracking down David Henke's articles on the Byline Times website about Palantir, whose founder, Peter Thiel, once wrote, I no longer believe that freedom and democracy are compatible. Just the man to be handling your NHS data then. I'm Adrian Goldberg and this is the Byline Times podcast. A subscription to our fabulous monthly paper, the Byline Times, costs just £36 a year. And as well as having something excellent to read, you'll know that if you take out a subs, you're also supporting this podcast and the Byline Times website. Details on how to subscribe are at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now we've featured Sweden and its response to Covid-19 more than once on this podcast and we make no apologies for returning to the subject again. Sweden, guided by its chief epidemiologist Anders Tegnell and the public health agency, the FHM, has put into practice the kind of anti-lockdown strategy espoused by many on the right in Britain, including a number of Tory MPs. It hasn't worked, Sweden accounts for more than three out of every four COVID-related deaths in the Nordic countries. But as we've heard on previous episodes, those who've spoken out against official policy have been ostracised by friends and, in some cases, forced to quit their jobs. Railing against the pressure to conform to such a dangerous consensus, Irish migrant Keith Begg set up a campaigning group called Miwas Media Watchdogs of Sweden and a private Facebook group where opponents of the policy could discuss their feelings in a safe space and discuss tactics. As a journalist, I was allowed to join and can vouch for the fact that its activities were entirely peaceful. But Swedish State Radio, which also accessed the Facebook group, carried out a shock-horror report earlier this month quoting security analysts and other experts who described the group's activities as troubling and alarming. Group members were accused of damaging Sweden's interests abroad. All this led to Keith getting threats at his home in Stockholm, and he's now headed back to Ireland for good. US-born Alyssa Bittner is another Covid refugee, having swapped Sweden for neighbouring Finland recently. We'll hear from both of them. But first, Keith's reaction to being outed for the apparently subversive act of disagreeing with the government.
5: It made me feel that I was living in an authoritarian country. I couldn't believe what I was hearing because for 10 years I have actually worked with rule of law, freedom of expression, the release of political dissidents in some of the most totalitarian countries in the world. And the email I got with the questions were so insidious. I will read you one of the questions just to give you an example of how we felt or I felt that we were railroaded or on a bit of a witch hunt. So one of the questions is, concerning the was Twitter account, at worst, the tone can trigger boundless people to commit crimes. What is your comment to this? And what was so insidious about the contact with me was all these experts from security to communication strategists were told that they had managed to get into our group, they analysed our group this is the rhetoric totalitarian states use. So we were between a rock and a hard place, to be honest with you, um, Adrian, that I couldn't believe it was happening. I didn't know how to react. I'm just an ordinary citizen going about my business who advocates in my spare time for what's happening in the Swedish strategy. So I think it was disbelief, That a state known for democracy could use tactics and antics that you remember what happened in China when BBC covered about the Uyghurs in China, they actually closed off BBC. So I'm not being as dramatic as that, but it was so insidious and so unexpected from a democratic or so called democratic country that I was actually lost for words. And it didn't hit me till several days after that this is really serious. And this is an invasion of privacy. We're a private Facebook group, but it's also, you know, it's tackling freedom of expression, like the basic tenets of a democracy are under threat with that. So that's how I felt.
0: And Keith, I am a member of that Private Facebook group, or as the Swedish state radio had it, that secret Facebook group, it said that the comments on the page were very worrying. They quoted security experts saying it was very troubling. If I didn't know the page, I'd think that there was some kind of untoward, potentially dangerous activity going on that page. My observation of the page was that you and colleagues, some of whom were quite well respected in the medical profession, others of whom were ordinary people, were simply asking questions of the state epidemiologist Anders Tegnell and other officials in the Swedish government, the kind of conversations that go on in Facebook groups day in, day out, without any problem all over the world.
5: You know, you've just nailed it there. I mean, how they've tried to align the Swedish Health Authority, the state media, the experts aligned to their policies you know, I am part of maybe 12 private groups. I don't even know how many groups I'm part of because I've just clicked on them through the years. So this is what is incredible is that they see a group of 200 people who come from all walks of life as a threat to the state. And for me, it comes down to that the international spotlight is now being turned on the architects of the Swedish strategy, whereas before they had really avoided it and it was more of a holistic view of what was happening in Sweden. So now international media is picking up that the Swedish strategy has indeed failed, where Sweden and uh, the Swedish authorities seem to be the only ones who do not realise it. And through hubris, exceptionalism and arrogance, they are now pointing the finger at ordinary citizens in a classic tool of deflection, to deflect away from their wrongdoings, mistakes and non-scientific advice. So we are the fall guys, but it's not just us. Other groups are now being attacked. If you're a member of a private group in Sweden, you're fair game. This is not okay.
0: And Keith, after the Swedish radio report about the group, you were targeted to the extent that you've now decided to quit Sweden. Yeah,
5: absolutely. I mean, it was so painstaking to say goodbye to my husband and my two uh, fur babies our cats. I got hate speech throughout the whole year. I've had people calling for me to be deported. I've been called Nazi. I've been called a traitor. I received a threat in my door at home. I don't know. I think i Developed a thick skin, but it's actually the rhetoric of the state that has me really, really concerned. And I think you have many Swedish people contacting me and saying, Oh my God, how can you say that the Swedish state and the mechanisms are trying to silence you? But it's the premeditation, Adrian, the premeditation of. An expert saying that you're a threat to democracy, that you're a terrorist. You know, I've heard this rhetoric in totalitarian states, and you know what the follow-up is. And I'm not saying Sweden is exactly like them, but it's the rhetoric that was dangerous. And of course, I felt that I needed to get away from the address also to protect my husband. You know, you become a bit paranoid. Who knows? Would a brick come through our window? I don't know. So I felt I needed to physically leave that address, and. You know, I was coming very, very close, I felt, to hitting the wall.
0: And Elisa, you moved to Sweden, you hoped, permanently in 2013. You've got two children, one of whom was born in Sweden. But you have now decided to quit the country and move to Finland next door because of its attitude to COVID-19. Just tell me more about that.
2: Well, I have a very long history with Sweden. I came as a teenager, a 17-year-old impressionable kid. I grew up in a very small town in the United States. And when I came to Sweden for the first time to be an exchange student, I had never even been on an airplane. So I had a very long and special relationship with Sweden. And when I moved to Sweden in 2013, my relationship and my love for the country was so strong that despite Swedish maybe not being one of the world's most common languages, I had managed to keep the language skills and I made the decision to move my entire family from Boston to Sweden. I felt that it was going to be a better childhood for my children, that I would be able, when I chose to have more children, that I could spend more time with them because it's very family friendly in terms of the welfare But I have to say throughout the years, one of the things I did notice is this sort of individualism that has really come to a head with the Corona crisis in Sweden, that I'm no stranger to individualism. I grew up in the United States, but the individualism in the United States is very different. It's more about being yourself. It's about realizing your potential. And there's a very strong sense of community that exists in places like the United States. We don't turn to the state, for example, for solutions. We often have to turn towards each other, but in Sweden, it's very different. It's more like, don't be a burden on other people kind of an individualism. It's more like there's got to be a state program for that. I pay a lot of taxes. This isn't my problem. And sometimes if you want help, You're almost sort of shamed for it. So whereas in the United States, maybe somebody holds a door open for you in Sweden, you could be there struggling with your pram, trying to leave the bus, and inevitably the person who comes to assist you is a foreign-born Swede. You know, that's just kind of the culture. You know, there are certain things I think that we decide that in any country there are good things and there are bad things. And you sort of weigh them out and you sort of decide that they're things you just learn to deal with and you accept there's no perfect place in the world. But when it came down to something like this, which is so existential and it really, there's a saying that you truly figure out the character isn't built by crisis. It's revealed. And being in that environment in the spring and listening to the way people would say, well, let the people at risk take care of it. Maybe they, they should be the ones to have to stay in. Oh, we'll do it this way. And we'll just lose a few of our sick and our elderly. That kind of dehumanizing speech is nothing. I want to be raising my family in that's not our family's values. That is so not my values. And I was just, regularly and continually appalled at what i heard i'm a very warm and empathetic person and i have to say that sweden hasn't always been the easiest fit for me in this sense but i was a very enthusiastic new citizen of sweden i became a citizen not a year before we left it is what it is
0: you bought yourself a the folk costume of Sweden, that's how embedded you felt and how warm you felt to your new home.
2: There's so many things I love about Sweden. I love the language and I love the culture and I love the folk crafts. Hemsloid is what that sort of thing is called in folk dreck. And I was heartbroken at the idea of leaving these things that were so positive to me. It was very important to me that our children be bilingual. They're both Swedish speakers, native Swedish speakers, because my eldest moved to Sweden when she was only three. But how do you continue on in an environment like that, even if the pandemic ended tomorrow? I can't forget that. I can't.
0: Kate's concern has been very much about the public health response in Sweden, the question of whether herd immunity, even though it's never been admitted as a policy, has actually been implemented in practice in Sweden. Your concern has been, it seems to me, cultural, a concern about the way the Swedish people react to the weak, to those who might be killed off by coronavirus if they're not properly protected.
2: That's certainly a big part of it. And that's the part that really made me think that, you know, crises, I've lived through hurricanes, tornadoes, snowstorms, a bombing. I was in Boston for the Boston bombing and I missed it by minutes. But the thing of it is, those crises will pass, but character, that's forever. And yes, societies change over time, but not that quick, not enough by the time that my kids are grown. I am concerned about the science. I am concerned about the policies themselves. But I also believe that those policies very much so reflect the people. I mean, if you think about at the beginning, this appeal to folk viet, like the wisdom of the Swedish people, there was a lot of arrogant puffery at the beginning. So living in Sweden in the springtime and summer for me was a little like gaslighting. I would literally be told on TV, oh, we're just so wonderful. We only need recommendations. We don't need laws. And then I look outside and they're all crawling on each other. There's no space whatsoever. They're shaking hands. They're hugging. They're doing the Swedish, you know, the old crown crown. It's like, and I'm there thinking like, are my eyes not working? It's to the point where you. I actually spent the first few weeks thinking, am I crazy? Am I missing something? And then I just realized that they're appealing to their own vanity to make this policy happen. And for whatever reason, they've chosen this policy. And I suspect it's because they can't afford to do anything else. The money has been gone. It's gone somewhere else. Finland was a country that had stocks. It opened up its emergency stocks. It has very much prepared for these kinds of things. And it's also a Nordic welfare state. Norway was also better prepared. Denmark was not as prepared, but got prepared. But Sweden basically decided, nah, we're not going to spend the money on that. We're not going to go into debt for this. We don't want to pay businesses to shut down. It's about what they could afford or were willing to spend. And then they figured, well, we'll just appeal to people's national, van- you know, the national vanity so that they don't panic. That was it.
0: There was one element of the attack on your group, Keith, which struck me as being very Trumpist, which was your perceived disloyalty in appealing to international media, of which, of course, the Byline Times and the Byline Times podcast is one. Never mind whether you were right or wrong. The question was the sense that you were being disloyal by appealing to international media.
5: Absolutely. And, you know, I was just reading an article recapping that back in June, an article appeared in Swedish newspaper where basically a report was, I I think, discovered that the Swedish government and the uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs, um, Linda, had basically instructed the diplomatic corps, including embassies and consulates to wash the image of Sweden. And what I find quite astounding, and I really, really concur with a lot of what Alyssa has said, they won't invest resources in saving people. And, you know, I think I've mentioned this to you before, uh, Adrian, they have spent 700 million Swedish kroners, on a bailout to Swedish media at a time when frontline workers, hospital workers, were being denied oral protection and elderly care homes were devoid of oxygen supplies. And one of the reasons cited for this is costs. Now, there has been some exceptions in the Swedish media, but basically Swedish media has been a mouthpiece for the government and the FHM. So absolutely, I concur with what you say, that, you know, you're seen as betraying Sweden. And just to add to that point, you know, Society cannot move on unless mistakes are admitted and s- mistakes are rectified. You know, in Ireland, I was part of campaigns for same sex marriage, for the rights of women to have autonomy over their own bodies, as in abortion. So nobody would think about this in Ireland that you're being disloyal. Many countries are not concerned with this right now, they're concerned with saving their people, saving the healthcare. But in Sweden, it is actually quite, I would say, sinister. There is a vanity here that carries them through. And Johan Giesecke, the former Swedish state epidemiologist, stated that Sweden is right and the world is wrong. Anders Tegnell, during the summer, his attitude about lockdowns was that the whole world went crazy. So, you know, there is a vanity there. There is an exceptionalism. And that needs to be
0: discussed. Keith Begg, and before that, Alyssa Bittner. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and you've been listening to the Byline Times podcast. If there's a story you think we should be covering on the podcast or in the Byline Times, do get in touch. You can email adrian at bylinetimes.com. Yes, I've got my own Byline Times email at last. adrian at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.